Hi, welcome. Phil Aston here from Now Spinning Magazine with another podcast. And in this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me the captain of the Lost Airwaves. And talking about this... (laughs) Waves. Waves. (laughs) Waves. And the album um, called Mysterium Tremendium. Is that... Have I pronounced that right, Captain? That's right. Mysterium Tremendum. I've been playing this for a while. I've had it for quite a while. Um, and I know for many of you watching and listening, this is a brand new artist. And, you know, I do like to do my bit for new music with my new music roundup. But this has been an absolutely superb album. It's a concept album. And for me, um, before we hear from the captain himself, it reminds me of Japan, Roger Waters, Tears of Fears, a bit of Genesis, bit of, a bit of Gabriel in there. There's all sorts of kind of things interweaving amongst it so let's go over to now the captain and tell us a little bit about yourself how did you how did you come up with the name the captain what's the background yeah well um funnily what what i should probably say just 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 briefly is i'm still on a kind of extended leave at the moment we had a yeah. unfortunate road traffic accident back in may so i won't be gigging until next spring um I've even got a fine walking stick, Phil. Oh, yeah. This. It's got a fine horse's Excellent. head, so I use that to get around. Um, and healing's, healing's quite profound, but, but slow, but, but we are getting there. So just to let people know that normally, um, if I become something of a pale imitation or a bad tribute to myself, it's because I'm captain on very, very low energy um, due to such, we all go yes. through accidents and affairs possibly of the heart as well. So uh, they, they, they take one's energy. So to get back to the, um, the original question was, um, in a similar scenario, um, I'd been down the kind of label route a little time and flirted with that and realised yeah. none of that was really for me, which is another story. But when I came away from all of this and then I ended up rather seriously unwell in 2009 with glandular fever, yeah, I remember thinking if I ever recover well enough, I'll do this the way that I was always told I couldn't. Because when you work with labels or people that attempt to curate or dictate how one's career should be, yeah, um, you're told what you can and can't say. And you're told what you can and can't record or how you should present it. Or this should be shorter or this shouldn't be quite as cerebral. Um, so a long story short is when I decided that I would come back and do it the way I felt I I could do it was I've always had a multifaceted approach to to music and art. I think music become very devoid of of other aspects, which I think are key to it. So why can't we use all forms of our characteristic to actually create a connection with an audience or yeah. with the listener? And um, I thought when I came up with the name, the Lost Waves referred to um, all the things we don't see. And all the things we've tended to, I mean, more now than ever, probably, we live in a very noisy world. We're saturated in distraction. So I thought captain of the lost waves might be an idea that I'm captain, because I don't really believe in any form of militaristic hierarchy. Uh, Somebody once reviewed me at Edinburgh Fringe and said, he's far too nice to be a captain. I said, you're missing the point. The point is that I'm only a captain in title. But what am I captain of? it's almost a sense of the disenfranchised or the things we don't choose to see. Yeah. So yeah. the captain was a play on words, really. Captain of the Lost Waves, Hidden Gems, Chapter One. It's all there. <laughs> no wonder I've remained as underground as I have, Phil. I think some of it might have been even subconsciously intentional. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do enjoy the underground. I do enjoy the magic that comes from that place and making music and art in a sense of almost um, a karmic karma yoga approach which is you completely absorb yourself within the art and the creation art for art's sake and the difficult thing it took me many years to learn was not to worry about the fruits of my actions at the end of it that's the hardest hardest challenge for any artist or person who makes their living from their art because you're saying i'm going to create everything to the best of my ability at this point in time but then beyond it it doesn't matter whether it's a success or not that's been that's been the major curve, you know, in learning about that. I would imagine that for most people, whether they're involved in music, um, painting, writing or whatever, wanting some kind of feedback to know that what they've created has resonated. 
um, is is important for us as uh, as people and humans anyway. And I think yes. that in today's world, uh, for artists, especially younger artists, it's they can almost feel as if they're chasing numbers. You know, it's a yeah. numbers game. How many followers? How many comments? How many interactions? How many subscribers? So it is a it is a very kind of brave thing to to just produce what's inside you without having any attachment to an outcome so is that is that an ongoing thing i know you've just said that's what you do but is it an ongoing no it is it is it is an ongoing scenario and it's a conversation you have with yourself because i feel that i was very much led from a young age um i resonated with things on a um a deep level, I would always say, and always struggle to find a home for where I, and I think a lot of human beings go, it's like the existential crisis. We all trying to figure out where we're going, what we're doing. But I felt like I couldn't quite, I, I had no sort of real tribal affiliations. And when you deviate from those ideas, uh, whereas a lot of Eastern philosophy became kind of like, um, it was it was a kind of, it was like a marker in the ground which helped me navigate because I'd grown up in a Western system and a Western model. So this idea of playing with karma yoga, like you say, is the opposite, because no manager or label or PR company goes, oh, we don't really mind how this works out. Um, it's a no. money game, and I understand that. So I do understand, I, I see the realities feel very much between a relative reality and the ultimate one. So the relative reality is, this is a human challenge. We've made a record. Can it be as successful as possible nothing wrong with that I'm saying part of my own journey was that is a regular conversation I still have with myself where I might say should I do that should I do that and that's the hardest thing to manage it's the decisions we make in ourselves, right or wrong and the instinctive decisions yeah. we make um just like things like talent shows which I've, I've constantly been kind of asked about and uh, would you come on and being offered and I've said to people, whilst I'm not a complete ultimate purist about all of this, I don't sit here in a in a cave saying I don't want anyone to. <laughs> it's not that at all. It's the utilization of the model of where it's taking me. And if you get into bed with some of these big talent shows, regardless of whether you think it's the right thing to do, and there's many people in the industry that think this is the right thing to do. Um, I won't name names, but certain larger named people who were really enamored with what I did live said get on The Voice, get on Britain's Got Talent. And when the offer came in to do that, it was like, this is what these people 25 years ago wouldn't have said. That's a very current model. And I think everything's become a sort of universal bland. I'm not saying there are, there's some amazing things you can see on these talent shows. Um, I've seen some amazing magicians. I've seen some incredible performers where you go, hey, you can't deny that there aren't people on there. They're extremely talented, but... It's been plummeted, it's sort of all been narrowed down and funneled down into this one corporate model. I don't really know where the true alternative is anymore. Because um, even the thing that claims itself to be alternative is just a slight left field version of corporate marketing. So I don't know where that true underground scene has gone. Maybe it maybe it has gone to that scene of where people are just doing it in very small incremental connection between each other for yeah. the art. Um I've often said, Phil, sorry, I'll end here with this. Um, I've often said that my favourite people to work with are people that seem to be free thinking and um, free spirits, except <laughs> the disadvantage that comes with is when you play at a free-spirited festival, <laughs> sometimes it's not always as well-organised as okay. a potentially yeah. corporate one. So I mean, you've got quite a good cult following, haven't you? You've got, you know, your, your YouTube channel, your social media channels, and the fact that th- this album, you've mentioned the people who wanted to be known as involved in crowdfunding. Yes. So you've got a, you've got a, a lot of people who, who really believe in what you do. So how did you, from, from the background you've just described, how did you start to get a following from the live shows and people uh, just... Yeah, pr- primarily. And I, and, and I think the interesting thing on that was I've kind of done it without an agent, a manager, or any help from a label. It's been like when people would tell you, oh, you need to change this, this, and this, because the public will become confused. I followed my instinct to say, I think you underestimate what the public's capable of. And what I noticed were people that become fanatical or come to many live shows, because I always say every live show, they're they're never the same. There's a lot of intuitive performance. And depending on how I am, I'm not very good at repeating myself. Um, and, and that may appear to be a, 
a put down. But as I say, I think it's like self-love. This talking about self-love is that you can only accept who you are. So if I could only accept myself because of all the things that I should do right, then I'd be here a long time. I've kind of accepted part of my pros and cons, even as a live artist, are I'll, I'll rip up the set list. And it, it, there is something very anarchic in my own artistic expression. And I try and stick to some core of the idea and then think, right, this gives me 15 minutes to, to sort of weave off this way and that way. And people generally as a room were kind of, um, generally as a rule, sorry, were, were sort of really taking to what I was bringing. Um, and then it falls down because then if people hear a man with a stringed instrument and say, wow, that was really great sort of acoustically. Have you ever thought about the folk scene? And I have inhabited little bits of that, but there's a folk scene, a folk scene, and a folk scene. There's certain scenes which allow new new music or, or, or a new idea of what folk music is, and then there are the traditional ideas of what folk music is, and I don't sort of veer it all into those levels, but, but I think there's so much music that's folk music that isn't described as such anymore. I think that the thing about listening to this album, and I, and I played it just before we started this um, interview, is that, and now you've just said that, like the, it's so not folk. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's a it, it's a concept album. This is how I mm. this is how I see it. Um, it's like pastoral prog. It's very English. Um, mm. It's there's a spiritual element to it as well. Um, you know, there's the choirs. There's the production. Mm. The production to all of you watching this thinking, you know, shall I give this a listen? The production is superb. And that's where I think the the tears for fears type of mm. feel. Mm. And, and mm. because obviously those guys were just brilliant at producing music. Yeah. But yeah. this, this the sound and the, the technical, um, you know, sound of this album is just up there with anything that would come out on a larger label like Universal or or BMG or anybody. It's it's up there. I mean when you were making the album, what was what was the the the, the kernel of the idea behind it? I mean how did it come about this album? I know it's part three of a trilogy, yeah. which makes it even yeah. more prog when you think <laughs> of it like that. So how how did the let's go back to the the first part. Yeah. You visualized this happening after the other two? Was your vision in place or has it come along as you've put it together? Yeah, that, well, that, that's interesting because what it did happen, what did happen was chapter one started off in this almost, there was a couple, two or three songs that were almost slightly whimsical, yeah. like Danger, about this epidemic of singer-songwriters. It was a kind of like love song to myself. Stop taking yourself so seriously. We've got enough yeah. singer-songwriters to, you know. So yeah. there was this sort of play. There was this play with fun. Uh, captain show plus this profundity then into chapter two it became more production there was elements that nods to sort of even morricone chapter three originally phil was yeah. classed as i thought chapter two was all for, um recorded on on tape and um that was a real labor of love every single instrument is recorded on tape yeah and once i knew that chapter two was done i thought that's it that's the big that's as big as we're going to get production-wise at this point. And then Chapter 3 is going to be the late-night Captain album, which you put on prior to sleep. That was the idea in my head. <laughs> so I had songs um, bouncing around and thinking, yep. And then a lockdown happened. Um, one of my um, my closest friends, who who is the sort of main, main other person on this record, um, Damien Clark, Damien, who's yeah. brilliant synth. Um, and pianist, um, he has a very strong sort of overview on this record because it was almost like once Damien became involved and then my other good friends like my engineer James Reed, and then a new drummer in Ed Todd, there was this new energy that came to it. And once we were in the middle of lockdown, there was a part of me that was almost ready for this reflective late night Cocteau Twins meets Leonard Cohen vibe. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Rick yeah. Rubin approach almost, yeah. But then... We started to sketch out a couple of songs and I remember Aid coming back and saying, can I make this 6 BPM faster on Animals on an Island? Love the song, but I think it should really move. Okay, let's, let's try something. So I've always been open to that. I've never had any kind of, um, it has to be my name that, you know, I mean, I write all my own stuff purely because it's very hard to get other people 
seemingly involved or confident enough to say, even people I've worked with, bring me a song that you've written. Oh, Captain, you know, you do that. But then bring me a song, try to encourage other people to write. But, um, but with this, it was almost very much that if you've got a better idea than me, I will submit to your idea. Um, I might have a vision about it. You might come out of the, you know, with something completely new. And so when A did that, he went back with this kind of almost like African rhythm that was faster, a bit reminiscent of a song off um, Chapter 2 called Drifting, which is sort of huge in drums. And uh, and then Damien talked about it. And then before we knew it, two or three songs in, we were kind of talking about this, this huge production. Um, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds was sort of in my head, and I was like, I've always loved orchestration. Uh, probably my, my greatest love is probably classical music. Though I'm self-taught, it's the way I classical music still to this day. If if there's things that leave you underwhelmed, that I put certain classical pieces on, they actually overwhelm me through their beauty. I think they are. So I, I have this strong nature about compositional nature. Or yeah. when I hear great musicianship or a song that just feels like it's another planet, literally. How does that happen? How does that work? That's the magic that keeps me going with it. And I think then the album became probably the biggest challenge of my life, if I'm honest, because in lockdown, and I think a lot of people were struggling, even with sort of motivation and tiredness. I, I was determined to keep the online shows going for people. It really depended on that, and that was very good yeah. um, in terms of keeping people's spirits up. But there were days I'd come in here, which is the outhouse. We just have a small terrace house here in the wild, wild west of Yorkshire, as yeah. I call it. <laughs> it's very wild. Um, <laughs> not in the ways that people might deem as well. Um, yeah. So you've got this tiny little outhouse. And of course, you're, you're prone to, one, if it's too cold, if it rains because it's a glass roof, or if it's too hot. So many days were dictated by, and because it's the end of a terrace, it's a right of where you have children playing up and down the path. <laughs> so if I've come out here ready to do a vocal, and the children, of course, it's it's the right of the children to play. So I just had to stop. So I thought, so I was always ready for something and then ready to have to stop. Yeah. But what was amazing about it was it became such a labor of love and it was so hard to make. And when I did Animals on an Island, I actually imagined that with a choir of voices. And I've often brought along the captain's choir, who are people that can't generally sing or they describe oh, yeah. themselves. I'm not a singer, Captain. I said, no, this is crowd chanting. You don't have to worry if you're sharp or flat, none of that, because I always encourage people to sing at my shows. I've never had this form of elitism about that's a musician, respect for the art. It, to me, it's more of a communal thing. This goes back to many years before we had an idea that a stage separates us. I don't even like the idea of being glorified. It's like this idea of uh, you've got something in you that just hasn't been expressed. I'm expressing something you're struggling to express. Therefore, let's exchange it. And you give me some of your wisdom. I think that's what always been this sort of, this homely gathering. So when I got people to sing at gigs, that was the idea. We did that on chapter two. Couldn't yeah. do it in lockdown. So I followed animals on an island and must have put 35 choral voices, trying to use different inflections in my voice yeah. to imagine them being different people. Um, I have to say, I mean, James Reed, his, his sort of like attention to detail and his patience, I think it almost slightly drove him mad in the middle of lockdown because this was a really hard record to make sonically. And you just picked up on it, Phil. It was... I always wanted, if we're going to do it, and, you know, Damien would always say, you're trying to create something that, you know, you, you, you're setting the barrier so high. You want a sound that sounds like Pink Floyd or we're doing it on minimal funds and we're having to be highly created between us. And I think that's the main thing you get back from it because when people do talk about the production or do talk about the engineering, um, something I only just found out about, James, about a year ago, six months, he said he was in a band signed to Sony called Blue Amazon. They were a dance duo. So he told the world for a short time, but he told me, do you know why I can manage to mix your stuff? Because it can be so multi, multi, yeah. multi-layered. I managed to do that because in the days when I was when I was on the dance scene, I would do remixes for certain bigger artists. And we would do it, Sean, he said, until all the sort of like, you know, all your feeds have gone, all your yeah. lead use has gone. I used to have a major. And he said, I was used to, you know, I used to have a reputation that I could take 80 tracks and create this thing. And that's what he's very, very good at. Damien uses a probably production overview with me, but James is engineering. Because I think if I'd given that to most engineers, they'd have just gone, I, I can't do this. I just, because it was too much for anyone. And yeah, um, yeah. 
I tried to reward him the best I could without having a major label budget, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Now, the the album also is over an hour long. So in old money, that's a double album. Yes. It's yes. a double vinyl yes. album. Um, so it's obviously, it's a huge project. Um, it really is. I mean, you mentioned a while ago about the fact that you, you really love classical music and certain mm. music really touches you. What are the... What 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 have you been your key influences? Uh, is artists or albums mm. or songs over the years? I think I, I, I've always had this uh, strange affliction and strange love of melody, um, and I love experimental equally. But if there's not a melody to hold me, even if it's veering very loose or it's like a maggot melody, there's something yeah. about melody that gets me every time. Um, and, and I remember well. My first memory of music was Cat Stevens' um, Teeth of the Tillerman. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing that hit me about Cat Stevens, and still does if I hear that record, was it felt like, I don't know, it was so, his, 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 the depth of his voice and the playing, and there was something about it that felt like, I don't know, it was, it, it was like a parental figure. It made you feel everything was going to be fine here. There was a warmth and there was a beauty to it. Is that the album beautiful... with Father and Son on, is it? That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many beautiful songs on there. Um, Where Do the Children Play and Sad oh, Lisa. Yeah. yeah. Longer boats are coming to win us. There was this feeling of, um, it felt like it felt like what you wanted to find in a church. Mm-hmm. It sort of nourished me and, and it stayed with me to this day that music somehow has always felt sacred to me. There's this healing quality in it. Um, And I think the essence of that was the start. So my love of melody, uh, growing up with my uncle and my grandparents, there was a lot of soul music. Um, I remember my uncles were sort of big Beatles fans back in the day, so then I'd inherited a little bit of that by the time I got to 10 or 12 and listened to the Beatles for the first time. Or And um, bands like ABBA, who still astonish me to this day. I mean, I was talking about Abba's songwriting brilliance 20 years ago, and people had kind of almost said, that's not a cool thing to say. I said, I'm a songwriter. And uh, when a song makes you slightly envious or slightly jealous, you wish you'd written it. I can't tell you how many times I've done that about an Abba composition. And, and, and Because I always had the sense of imagination. Um I could hear a song by Abba. Okay, a lot of people didn't like the way Abba looked. It was like all this stuff. Oh, it's a bit cheesy. It's glitzy. Yes, it may well be. But when you listen to SOS or Knowing Me, Knowing You or The Name of the Game, you listen to it musically just as a musician. And you imagine your favorite metal band doing it, let's say. Yeah. It translates so brilliant because these are killer melodies, uh, killer harmonies, killer songwriting. The weirdest thing is all these years later now, Phil, is how many people say, Abba were a ref, you know, Abba were a massive influence on me. Steve yeah, Jones yeah. Out, the, out the Sex Pistols. He wanted to follow, I think, or Pretty Vacant. He was trying to follow uh, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme a Man After Midnight as a riff, and he couldn't play it. <laughs> Adam Clayton did the same with New Year's Day, I gather, for you too, trying to follow a, uh, an Abba song. And then I just saw um, an interview recently with Captain Sensible of The Damned. Yeah. He said, I never want to say it back in the day, but I was such a fan of Abba. And if you, if you are a songwriter... Yeah, I think my love of classical music, which they do in a pop classical vein. When you listen to albums like The Visitors, which was ABBA in complete adult contemporary mode, yeah, and you listen to The Day Before You Came, it's just, I think in popular music, it's just phenomenal. And then getting into sort of 80s sounds, which I still think the 80s, for me growing up, yeah, because I, I sort of missed the 70s, and that's, the 80s for me was that bands were so creative. Um, Everything I love from Tears of Fears, Japan, Talking Heads, Adam and the Ants, Craftwork, yeah. Prince. Yeah. I mean, you just name those. And you remember Top of the Pops. I mean, we were spoiled, really, Phil, and, and the magic of that music. And and I've loved certain metal things. I've My, my love of ACDC goes back years to early Bon Scott because what a vocalist. And the way Angus and Malcolm Young, something in their rhythm textures in ACDC that really, really got to me. And still do. So I don't have any, I've always been one of those people so completely eclectic that whilst classical might be my main desert island thing, you play any of these records from the Pistols to the Damned to ABBA to Hot Chocolate to the Beat 
yeah. if it's a great song, you know, there are things you might vibe with more because you affiliate with them more because there might be a more visceral feeling to it. Or, you know, I was into bands like um, Sphere of Destiny, Killing yeah. Joke, because there was something shamanic and quite menacing. I love the darkness in music as well. I think there's great, I think a lot of darker music tends to stay with us more. Um, love is more effusive. So the darker the emotion, uh, Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, it, it, so, it resonates because there's something within the human psyche that we're resonant with darker music more than, oh, that's a happy song. When you're happy, you don't always think about it. You only think about things much more when you're going through a darker period. And I think that's why we all affiliate with those things at some level. You, you mentioned about uh, the healing power of music because um, saying that music is the healer is one of my kind of catchphrases when I do a lot mm. of my videos because I've always felt that whatever you put, whatever music you put on in a room changes the atmosphere of that room Absolutely. forever, Absolutely. depending on who's visited it, you know, whether mm. it's Tangerine Dream or, or, or ABBA or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what's your – so – you want to talk about that in a bit more depth about why you feel yeah. that music is like a healing power. Yeah. Cause I, I often think things, um, people put a lot of memes up like you were just explaining there, Phil, you'll sometimes get these, I mean, they're great, but you get these sort of lazy memes about how music can, but like you say, it's a certain energy and a certain interpretation of music. Yeah. So if you, it's a bit like going to a children's tea party and all the children have gone, there's an energy <laughs> A residual energy in the air that makes you feel happy. Yeah. yeah. And we've all walked into bars or venues or where the energy is much lower. Yeah. It feels like something's about to kick off. And we all have that. Some people <laughs> might call it psychic, but we all have that. It's just been kind of dried up in us because we, yeah. I think it's a muscle that needs to be used like anything else. I think in terms of the healing journey, because I would hear music on different fronts, there was music that felt like it was a warm duvet around you. Yeah. Or like a you know, an absent parent whispering in your ear, it was gonna or an angel, I don't know. Um yeah. there was that feeling. Then there was the visceral jumping up and down. It was quite anarchic, it was a different sort of energy. So that 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 energizes you in a in a quite intense fashion. Yeah. Um but of course these are all ways of releasing energy and that sort of cause and effect of everything around us. What I found with music on my own journey is that the more I connected with this stripping away of, of certain attributes and the way that we are conditioned. Because uh, I think I've gone through a series of mini breakdowns. I don't think I've ever had an official, you know, what someone would say, oh, I think he's having a, a breakdown. Right. I think I've had mini breakdowns in the way that everything I thought I once believed, I've kind of gone, I was so wrong. And then right now we're here. I've got to start again. And it's like another mini breakdown. Then you get to this point, you go, it's like a weatherstone being paired back by a thunderstorm and you're going, I don't know where I fit or take this anymore, but okay, I'll go with the journey. Life's trying to humble me somehow. I'm a great believer in that. You don't need a guru. You just you just need life to do its thing and it humbles <laughs> you as to how small yeah. you are. And I think as music became more and more, particularly on the classical front probably for me, yeah. um, it just takes me to a place where it's a complete altered state of consciousness. And there are times I've come out of it, and I do meditate regularly, but it's a very similar form to meditation, that you're in this presence of such beauty that's so profound that something happens, something moves. And, and, and even though I'm, I'm a, I love words, I listen to very little music with words probably for the that's last 10 years. Yeah. It was almost like I create so much with words and music that when I'm going to nourish myself, I listen to this thing that feels like it's some kind of, I don't know, divine messenger, for want of a better word. And it feels very, as if it does change you inside out. And what I noticed, I, I did, did work in prisons and secure units, mental health wards. And, um, and also I worked for music in hospitals, which was a, a charity set up to play music for people in uh, either terminally ill conditions uh, mental health wards, children's wards, sickness. Yeah. They were some of the most prized memories still I have of the connection of music, that that when you're working on that level, there's something so pure as the exchange. And when you see someone who seems in the worst place possible, 
but then there's an interaction with you and the music and some conversation or laughter even, or a yeah. profound moment where people will cry together. Um, it's, 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 it's kind of an art form that, all, that often that we take for granted. And I think the, the way we've cheapened music over the years, uh, I think music's the only art form that now people basically want for free. You know, you go watch a movie or you go to the theatre or I know photography is getting into that realm as well with the fact yeah. that everyone can, you know, photograph on, the, on their phones. Um, but music always felt much more of a, a sacred thing to me. So even listen to, to old um, Sanskrit music from yeah. India yeah. and then the Gregorian monastic music, there's something in it. You know, a lot of the thirds and fifths in musical sense, Gregorian chants, Wow, I don't know what it is that happens to the body, but if you allow it to come in, you don't have to have any dogma around it or believe in a particular God. It, it just It's resonating with that. I think that is music of the spheres. And I think when people get it right, whether that's the Beatles, Pink Floyd, the Sex Pistols, ABBA, whoever, when they get it right, it aligns with something that aligns with something within you. Can't quite explain it. You couldn't mm -hmm. explain it to someone who's never heard music to go, I want to break down this song for you. I think that's when music can really have its true power of innovation. And I mean, I did go through a sound healing course for some time. And what was odd was the lady who was doing the sound healing, because um, I realized my own music tastes were changing so much. Oh, yeah. And, and with sound healing, she studied it for five years. And she, was, she used to be a massive fan of Elvis Costello. And she said, funnily, she said, I still got the old records, but I can't listen to them anymore. What, just Elvis? No, no, most modern music. Because it, my whole change of style of what I resonate with, what used to nourish me no longer does, which, which is quite fascinating. And that's mm. quite a frightening place as well for yeah. any of us to go to because all the things that we think hold us together, we suddenly go, I don't think I'm into that like I used to be. That's natural growth. And some yeah. things do stay with us, don't they? Some records yeah, we yeah, might heard 40 years ago and, and, yeah. and, and others don't feel, you know? Yeah, that's right. It was like the soundtrack to your life, isn't it? So when you do want to nourish yourself with, um, you know, what what do you listen to? Uh, just probably what I've described there, but I suppose if I'm being specific, um, I'm going to go back to, you know, the sort of obvious like Vivaldi and uh, Bach, um, Debussy. I, I mean, there's lots of things. I had this three CD pack of Beethoven <laughs> recently yeah. bought for me. And uh, that's quite grueling as well as so rewarding because there's so <laughs> much complexity in it. Yeah. I think, I think because when I'm asking for that nourishment, it's a bit like when you can, I suppose it's a bit like a chef who cooks all day and he's, he's using onions and mushrooms and cheese and whatever. And then he's going, Oh, they're using a food stuff. I'm not really aware of. It's that feeling of, I don't know, you're going to a restaurant in space. So it's a choice <laughs> out of those things. Um, and then there's a lot of ambient, ambient music. So I'll go back to a lot of Indian music as well as, oh, yeah, yeah. like I say, Gregorian chant. So I tend to go back many years and, and, and on a front off that, where that kind of does a sideways glance, then I'm, I love things like Tangerine Dream, Vangelis, um, Kraftwerk for different reasons. Kraftwerk's like a mixture of such a starkly beautiful electronic clarity with these simple voices doing this very, very German, very Teutonic kind of, and there's something very pure about Kraftwerk. You listen to a Kraftwerk record, it feels like it's, it's, it's very muscular, but yeah. then you realise the complexity behind it. Um, Kraftwerk are a funny one because I can have a similar effect listening to Kraftwerk as I can a piece of classical music. But as I say, I often think of, if there's a nature of evolution, even in people's consciousness, Phil, mm -hmm. I look at the current age and I go, why did music feel so much more evolved back then? Because when you listen to the 70s and you listen to that music and where it was coming from in the late 60s, you can go back and you go, you know, this aligns with what I'm thinking people are talking about now. And yet much of the music we're hearing now, maybe it's made to perfect Everything, not everything, commercially, a lot of things are auto-tuned. Music has always been a reflection of its ages. And there was a certain innocence and a magic and a, an exploration in those records going back. Whereas now it feels almost quite, especially in the commercial world, it's planned, it's executed, and it's brilliantly recorded. I mean, you can hear some of these recordings now and you go, 
You're not going to record anything better than that. But in a way, I think it's perfection renders it less valuable than the records that were imperfect. Because I think by the very nature of what people are, just sort of answering my own question here, what is it that we align with in an old Pink Floyd record or Beatles or The Who or The Stones or whoever? What is it? There's a, there's a certain white noise and the tape might have been a little bit, might have fluttered at times. It was a bass note that was slightly out. That's what we love about it. That's what we love. And I, I know a lot of young kids may not always be aware of that, but there's a lot, there's enough young kids that are going back to older music and going, what is it about that? What is it about that? You know, we listened to Cashmere the other night by Led Zeppelin. And you go, what is that? You know, I'm only sleeping by the Beatles on Revolver, one of my favorite yeah, songs. Uh, it's, it's, like well. it's, it's in individuality, isn't it? That, because each voice from the 70s, we just name loads of lead vocalists now, and they'd all sound different. Not all of them will be necessarily fantastic singers, mm. whether it's Brian Ferry, Ian Hunter, mm. Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper, mm. you know, mm. the, but they all have made a sound that you thought, yeah. I know who that is. I know who that is. Uh, and, and that's why I think with modern pop, it sounds fantastic, but it sounds more like a product that it's. <laughs> Coming out of yeah. a coming out of a machine. Now, going back yes. to to your journey, because you, you obviously come across as a very driven, positive person. But you've, as you say, when you started the interview, you've had a very very serious car accident, which yeah. has completely thrown all of your plans up in the air. But <laughs> you, but you, but if you hadn't have mentioned that just for the few seconds, we said, "Oh, by the way, about this," nobody would have believed. Yes. Nobody would have known. <laughs> That behind the scenes, you've you've had one hell of a journey, and as you said before, before that, you were very ill with glandular fever. Mm-hmm. How do you put that into context with your journey and your your outlook on 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 what you're doing? Yeah, I, it's a curious one because I do have friends in my life, or people have always said, "That's your problem." You always see the good in everything, and. I, you know, I used to have people that I played with who said, don't ever become as cynical as us. The thing about me is I'm well aware of the, the pros and cons of human nature. I've been let down many, many a time. I've been exploited many, many a time, Phil. I've gone through the mill like many people. I think my only ambition, if I had an ambition, was never to try, never to become fully bitter. We can all have moments of bitterness. We can yeah. all have moments of... Um, you know, unless it's a real uh, profound form of depression, we all have moments of depressive energy or yeah. thoughts. When navigate as a songwriter, I'm, I'm also also very affiliated to the to the dark romanticism and melancholia of life because I feel, without getting into things of saying, have we existed before? What did I bring into this existence? It was always a very sensitive child with this ability for. I could cry at looking at old people on the train alone when I was only four or five. And my grandma would always say, why does it always get to you so much? I remember playing um, a movie about the life of Joan of Arc, and I cried for days. And (laughs) she used to say, you know, I know Joan of Arc died, but it was a long time ago. It was just a TV program. She couldn't console me. And there was something within me that felt as if, as if like I was here in this form, but, Let's imagine for a sort of argument's sake, if, yeah. if reincarnation is true, what energy we bring into this life or where we may feel slightly more alienated or feel slightly more familiar can be places or whatever. There was a feeling of um, an awareness of something in me that had to navigate so many challenges. Um, you know, I'm being a mixed, well, a technically, I suppose, mixed blood child uh, and growing up in Yorkshire after my father died when I was one and um, my mum had a really bad time. She's major breakdown I was looking after my sister I was only three yeah and one of my earliest memories is you know my sister crying on my shoulder every night and she'd always say you'll never leave me will you you'll never because she was in such a broken state and because my mum was in such a broken state she didn't know how to parent us and so eventually we came to my grandparents um in Halifax West Yorkshire yeah I mean you know from a very young age I was called every racist term under the sun People who meet me now go, what, they called you? Oh, I was called, you know, every unrepeatable name you could believe. You. Oh, I see he's a little bit, maybe a touch of foreign. That's the polite way now. Things I was called. And when you figure that out growing up, you have all these notions about, what am I? Some of my friends call me black. Some of my friends call me white. 
some of my friends say I'm, are you part Asian? Or when they say it politely, or are you part Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian? There was Indian genes, but but the point is most people weren't that polite. And at that time, I think, Phil, I think Diego Maradona, they said it, he was classed as coloured at the time. He wasn't a brown man. He yeah. was black. And so I was called black where I'd kind of go, oh, I'm a little bit brown, aren't I? <laughs> and yeah. you grow up with this confusion. So that's part of the childlike confusion of growing up in a very indigenous, so very indigenous at the time was Halifax. I used to know uh, art teachers that come up from Birmingham and Halifax had quite a strong reputation at the time. It's quite a racist, hard place to, to live yeah. and work. Um, and of course, growing up older and then coming through all the different challenges I went through in life and the challenges of my, you know, losing our first child and the challenges that my own son has had for four years with uh, a condition called neutropenia, which means he can't produce enough white blood cells. And he's been through the most challenging of times. And I've had other people say, how do you carry on writing? How do you carry on? Because I almost feel, and this could be deluded. No, I, I'm not, I, I, I never say I'm right. I'm only trying to follow, follow mm-hmm. my own instinct. I say to people, your right to think about my journey is, is your right from the outside looking in. Even I can't figure out my journey. None of us really know who we are. We're trying to get a grasp on who we are. We can't decide what's right for somebody else because we actually don't know what's right for ourselves. In many ways, we have our own distinct blind spots. But as we're navigating life and trying to let go of the complexities, yeah. we realize that life's either teaching me the most immense lesson here. And I have a friend who says, God, I don't know what you were in a previous life, but maybe it's your karmic debt. Maybe it is. Um, uh, and and I'm not saying whether that's true or not, and, uh, but what I am saying is I've kind of tried to accept the journey, Phil, and I've said, even to my son when he was going through it, I said, I don't want you to see yourself as special or that you were chosen, but life is wanting you to realize something through your journey from such a young age, and he has such a profound head on his shoulders, but he says to me, not just with the conversations we've had growing up, and I laughed with him once. He said, I wish, Dad, we didn't have some of these really heavy conversations when he was a bit younger. He said, because uh, sometimes I want to retain the illusion yeah. <laughs> of society. But only recently he said, Dad, I'm really glad we've had those conversations because actually you've saved me about 20 years, which I thought was the loveliest thing anyone could ever say to you. Um, but, but, but what I love in Harry's courage and what he's doing is I can't help but be open. That's one of my challenges as well is, I, I have this transparency in my nature, live or otherwise. And to do that in a Western culture, which wants us to be much more stiff-lipped, yeah. quiet, we don't really show our feelings. Um, that's part of what, what makes but- uh, Britain so resilient. And I think there's a character in that. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that when yeah. some of us veer more to being this kind of transparent with our with our shortcomings or anything, yeah. We are very much taught not to ever show people our shortcomings. Don't ever show somebody you're vulnerable. I'm of the opposite thinking that something fuels me, Phil, to say, no, here it is, and here's the music. And even I've been through such incredibly difficult times, I say, what does the music want to say through me? Maybe that's the gift. Maybe that's the gift I have. And it might only be a tiny gift, but I can give that out. So I I see it very, um, an almost mystical, profound journey. And maybe because my alignment, my confirmation bias from a young child felt that sense of the sacred in everything I felt. So Cat Stevens, listening to it, felt like a voice of some mystical man who was there yeah. to look after me. Some people would have just heard a great record. Yeah. Um, you know, um, we are all but so different, really. And it's been a difficult one for me to navigate that thing. But, um, but I, I wonder if it's, what's kind of shaped me into this this thing you know this thing i think life experience does that was all doesn't it yeah well that's 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 really interesting and is it do you think that because of your because of your background that's how you became interested in more kind of like eastern philosophies and do you- well yeah i mean po- possibly my, my my grandma grew up in burma and she was um her mother was Portuguese because a lot of Portuguese roots as well. And my granddad was French, French Irish. Well, he was born in Ireland, but he was taken. His dad worked for the Eastern Indian Europe, Eastern Indian Company. Sorry, he grew up in an Indian orphanage, and he met my gran at the. It was like something like the the, the All Mission Girls School in India. There was this part where they both met. She came from Burma. 
he came. But and then they came, of course, with the British military. They were in Egypt, Africa, and um, India, and then came to England. He had a choice between Salisbury and Halifax. And for many years, he always thought, well, I wonder what Salisbury would have been like. I suppose we all do that when we make a choice. But my grand was Seventh-day Adventist. She was much more, she was straight ahead. She had bad experience of, because um, I've been very much in a lot of Buddhist teachings as well. She wasn't always keen on um, some of the things she'd seen forms of Buddhism in, in, in Burma, which were yeah. really quite, uh, it was the junta. And she said the things she saw that happened to a lot of Burmese people so she was very much on that sort of Seventh-day Adventist side, then got into the sort of evangelical churches in Britain, like Elam, Elam Evangelical. And whilst I was always brought up in that environment, I always felt it went way beyond that for me. So it wasn't something I inherited, but it was something that I would have these conversations yeah. with my gran in the early hours about, do not think Jesus Christ might have been a yogi? And if you look at what Jesus Christ or the symbology or whether the man was real, what he's talking about, and my gran would sometimes sort of try and shoot me down other times. Oh, I don't know, Sean. That's, oh, I don't know. You've started, <laughs> you've made my head hurt. But I think there's a little bit of truth in all these things. I don't think there's there's one complete ideal. I, I think it's I think it's all of it. It's like a prism. And when you see all of it, Eastern philosophy particularly, this is what I mean, Phil. You don't know why something resonates with you so strongly that you think, you know, did I, what's my yearning to, to be sat meditating in the hills for weeks in silence. <laughs> Most people would see that as a complete bore. And I'm not saying that there aren't moments I can, I can meditate for, for a while, or but then people get back to doing things or watching a movie or... yeah. You know, most of it was that old thing that uh, it was about as much fun as a Buddhist stag do, <laughs> is the old <laughs> joke. How people might see my approach to certain things that resonate with me. But um, I think because the East has so much to teach us, and including... Um, you know, the old ancient sort of Chinese culture and like the Tao Te Ching and Confucius. And these are incredibly bright sort of just, and I actually actually think a lot of people are looking back now again, just like I'm saying with music, actually coming to this point of evolution by saying, actually the true wisdom, even the earlier Christian mystics, it's like listening to a yogi and you go, this is really profound stuff that I think we've only really scraped the surface of. Um, and I, so I suppose, um, I suppose that the short answer to that question is, I don't know whether there might be something in me as a genealogy thing, or you know, part of your genealogy that's that's resonating with a place, or even the way people look. I must admit that since my grand passed many years ago, my uncle that I grew up with, because they were much darker skinned than me, there's always this feeling that when I go into an Indian restaurant, or it feels like I'm home. So on a physical point of view. When I see, it could be my uncle. So there is that definite. So I suppose if you're Nordic or you're Swedish or you might have blonde hair and blue eyes, there's a sense of, there's an affiliation. So I think on a physical level, there was definitely that feeling of, I feel like I've come home and because it feels like when it's good, there's this openness for discussion about all spiritual aspects of life that we don't really, I mean, and, and even though I went to you know the Church of England when I was in the Cub Scouts and things, it was it wasn't about joy to me it was far more rigid you know you yeah. had to be confirmed and we take the fine and he should everything felt like a, a yeah. toll it didn't feel like whereas there's joy in a lot i'm not saying there's lots there's lots that's wrong about india um and on a political sense but i'm talking about the seeds of something um i think like even the seeds of of even catholicism or any teaching there may have been some beautiful seeds of it what they've morphed into Bit like MPs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sort of think he started off as a good guy, and then eventually ended up so corrupt that you know. Um, I think that's just the same of all human nature, really. Yeah. You know. So I could because before I even knew that aspect of you, I could tell that from the album it was it's a very deep album, and I've always felt that, as you said, that a lot of music doesn't need words. Um, mm -hmm. But it still touches you. It, it, yes. it can it can carry your emotion. If you're feeling a bit down, you can put something on that's uplifting, and it changes. As I've said, just it changes the room, but it can change you. Um, and and this album to me is a, is a journey. It's a great sounding album, as we've said. And as you've been through a lot this year, and you're obviously looking really, really well, you know, as I look at you now. Um, I'll probably so, collapse now for two days, Phil. <laughs> I mean, so 
what what are the plans for this album? Are you, are you hoping to do some gigs in in twenty twenty three? Yeah, yeah. That that's the idea to try and uh, even though it's officially released um, Tuesday the twenty seventh of September, it's had some great national press. I've just got a five star review from Rock and Reel for it again. That's my fourth five star review on a run. And not that I'm into plaques or trophies, but I was laughing with the guy who you know should I get a plaque for this four four five stars? I, yeah, I feel very blessed. Um, and Prog Magazine just had a mini review, which was really favourable. But, you know, my friend was saying, that's a great few lines. But it's a shame they didn't do a full, full review. But, um, but yeah, I mean, press is getting more and more limited. Um, so when you're picking up press, it's great. Um, the idea is with the record, because I can't tour it now this year, I'm going to try and do something from next spring onwards and just finding venues which will be right for it. And it, it, it may well be that that when I go out and often do a lot of solo work, that's because I'm a purely independent artist in the way that unless you're selling big halls, there was an idea to tour this with the band this year. There was an idea we should take yeah, it out yeah. as it is because all that's now been curtailed. It's how can I re-enter the fray next year? Will it be some some small solo shows initially or storytelling events or just little events of my own that I put on? Try and do it in a gentle way and build up. But I think hopefully by spring, I'd, I'd, I'd be aiming to try and get, I mean, I can't walk without a stick on aided at the moment and things, but, and it's still a struggle to play. So I can play a little, but I can't sing yet without pain in the, because I've got a sternum injury. Yeah. So if I can get back to that point of come spring where I think, right, because the captain's shows are very physical. In fact, physical for a man half my age. I don't know what I'm doing, Phil. <laughs> I've had I 20 mean, years, look, 20 years look, approach me and you say you must to, be on social or recreational drugs. I mean, your um, recent video you shared with me is fantastic. Um, oh, was, thank you. was that film? Was that film before your accident? Before or? the crash. Before yeah. the crash. Yeah, um, I did a video for that. Death of the attention span, and a video for animals on an island. And um, those are the two that were both recorded in April, and the yeah. crash happened on May the twenty second. We've just been trying to edit things in between where I couldn't even sort of really communicate effectively the first month because it was such a difficult thing to concentrate. That's. Yeah, like I say, I was talking some of the day, I said, oh, you don't sound like... I'm, I wonder if this is the performance thing as well, Phil. I've done it for so long. You can tap back into some old latent memory and you can do it. Though it's never a performance, it's always just myself, but it feels yeah. I'm back in the folds. yet things are really aching. But I can sort of... like It's like often like any performer can carry a gig, say thank you to everyone, and then collapse because he's done <laughs> it because that's part of what he does, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so um, so there are four videos ready, and another two are lyric videos. Um, obviously, I can't do anything physically for a while, so I was glad at least I got those two in the bag. Um, and there's a couple of other things as well from a church concert we did um, last December when there was a whole complete power cut, and we filmed the whole thing in the dark with a bit of light, which is fab. <laughs> so that's that's going to come as well. So there's a few things. At least I'm thankful I've got a few things there, you know. Well, it's a... For those of you watching, um, because we've talked a lot about, we've gone into absolute depth of you as a character and the the person behind the music, but I would say this is a prog album and it's so well, it's not, I've talked about the production, but it's not just the production, it's the way it's sequenced. It's the way the story unfolds. It flows really, really well. Um, It's a great hour of your life, you know, that you can put this on and just just float along the top of it. Um, I love the song um, Death of the Attention Span um, because... That's obviously that's obviously aimed at um, the way that a lot of us, our attention has <laughs> been hijacked every 10 seconds by our phones oh, and everything perfect. else. Um, but it's an absolutely superb album. And they can tell us a bit more about the musicians who've been on it. You spoke about the the, the guy yeah. on the drums, but you, your yeah. keyboard player is, is really yeah. at the heart of this, isn't he? Yes. Um, yeah, Damien is a very dear friend and he's very... Um, I would say he's like an extreme version of, let's put it this way, he's a very thorough artist in so many ways. He's a visual artist, he's a brilliant creator, he sculpts as well. Um, And he's very, if he gets involved with something, he doesn't just get, oh, throw me that over, I'll get involved, I'll put something down. He knows the sound he's looking for. Um, And and I will even joke about, are you sure you've been thorough enough with this, Damien? (laughs) He's brilliant. He's brilliant. In, the, in, in If he takes anything on, he's going to do it to the best of his ability. And whenever he's worked on anything of mine, he will throw his whole soul into it to say, 
you know, there's a, there's a new, there's a few new things that he was working on before and saying, hmm, I haven't quite hit the sound. I know the string sound I wanted. We'll go back to a Morricone reference. He's sort of like a library, but he's very instinctive and very artistic in the way that he might look at something, but then look at the work that goes into it. He's, in fact, he taught me more about karma yoga, probably prior to me understanding the concept of it more than anyone, because he would work on something for five years and he would then say, you release it when you're ready. But you don't mind, if it's 10 years, it's 10 years. Hang on, you've worked on this for five years. So his whole overview as a person comes into it. And I think when I said to him that, that in my mind's eye, when these songs were coming together, these were big songs, a lot of them. And I said, I want to join the whole thing and you'll be the scene that joins everything. So then his intros and outros became this, yeah. this ambient, like sleep music. Yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I also said, Phil, this album should make you feel like you're tripping whether you've had anything or not. I want it to be an album where people <laughs> completely lucidly feel like they're tripping to this record. And we'll go through where we'll inhabit every song. We'll pay reverence and homage to the song. And of course, after every song you come out, then it takes you into this, this lovely sort of mm. soft bed of sounds. And it sort of central centralizes you. And, and, then, and then it grounds you. And then, oh, something else is happening. And, and, and like you were saying about the journey, the journey was really key about starting quite, uh, sort of slightly sort of like ominous, but in this kind of what what are we seeing? What is the Mysterium Tremendum? It's 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 it was an early it was an early Christian mystic and it was Rudolf Otto who came up with the term that when we have life-changing events, we feel a sense of beauty. We are awestruck, but there's also a sense of terror because it's a bit like joy. You can't control joy. And when your body or your senses feel this thing, and, and I have this idea with the record that the captain on the trilogy has entered. He's finally within the Mysterium Tremendum. And so these are all these little ideas about these characters or myself and on this journey. And then when you get to the end of the record with paper aeroplanes, there's this lightness of feel that you've come through this darker journey and you're coming out towards the light. And then, of course, if you leave it on a few minutes, two minutes, there's there's three hidden tracks as well. Yes, I um, noticed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One being called Avoidance of the Void, which is all about yeah. everything I was talking about later, earlier. And the yeah. last track's called Hidden, which was all about my uh, being chased by TV talent shows and what I would have sung back to them. Um, it's a sort of nod to the judges, you yeah, know, because excellent. there's so many people who say, well, if yeah. you're so good, why doesn't anybody know you? And you could name that of... <laughs> Thousands of people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that was my yeah. nod to all those people who never get out of their bedrooms, but might be a modern day Mozart. No. So, will there be a part four? No, I think the trilogy is now done. It was always going to be three parts. Um, there will be more music yeah. as the captain, but I felt that Hidden Gems, Chapter One, Chapter Two, The Circus of Morality, Chapter Three, Mysterium Tremendum, that's closed that particular chapter of what I always. I've always had a thing for certain numbers. Three is one of those numbers, the triad of all things, the symbology of the Trinity, this cosmic sense of, yeah, three is the magic number. Um, so <laughs> okay. there was always this idea of a trilogy. So then um, records from on here will just have standalone titles. Brilliant. So if people now, after listening to you and understanding more about the music and you, where's the best place for them to pick up this album? Either my website, which is captainofthelostwaves.com or Bandcamp. Um, so everything's on Bandcamp. All my back catalogs on Bandcamp as well as the captain. Um, and I can I'm not on it. any of the streaming yeah. platform, right or wrong. You still have doubts about whether you've done the right thing because the amount of people that tell you they'd like you on a Spotify playlist, I'm not on Spotify anymore. So I realise from a business point of view, it's not always a good move, but I'm not on any of the other platforms bar Bandcamp. So okay. I thought Bandcamp was the only one that felt it resonated with me. And I've always been on this kind of musical Robin Hood journey. I'm only one tiny artist, but I thought, how do we get back to making? And it's my own probably naive, somewhat naive approach, because I want to find the value in my own music to say, you can only buy this now on vinyl or on CD, or you can actually download it on Bandcamp. But I didn't want it everywhere. It was everywhere for about two or three years. And I almost felt a sense of, um, I don't know, the hard work and toll and hours people put into things. It's like sculpting or any form of craftsmanship. And then you just go, let's stick it all over Spotify for it to be background music. And I 
as I say, that might be idyllic. I'm not saying it isn't probably classed as a naive business move. But I almost felt, again, it's that thing, Phil, of that voice inside you that's going, walk away from it. This isn't a good business move. Walk away from it. We'll be all right. I'm not always sure. And if I'm not all right, I'll be asking that voice <laughs> why he's made me make so many uh, decisions that didn't help me on a business front. But there is something in me that um, that that is on this kind of idea beyond what our prescribed ideas of freedom are. And I, I, I'm one little artist who's doing it, but it feels like we have to find a way. I think the music's just symbolic of a far greater thing that's happening within society and the world. That yeah. Unless we value what we do at some level, it becomes disposable. Um, and it was an old friend of mine years ago in a blues band who said, as soon as you can copy and paste something, you already realize you've lost its value. Brilliant, brilliant. And, you know, I, yeah, I yearn for a day where you could only buy something on vinyl. Imagine that. Even my son says, imagine that, that you've no radio. Oh, my God, this is on vinyl. It'd be like gold dust, wouldn't it? And that's what it used to be like, in a yeah. sense, growing yeah, up. Yeah, that is what it used to be like, very much so. Well, thanks very much, Captain. Thank you for your time. And uh, so you, if you want to find out more, it's captainofthelostwaves.com. And the album is Mysterium Tremendum. Uh, it's absolutely superb so thank you to all my listeners and all my viewers and i shall see you on my next episode thank you